rainbows high and deep. Touchdown, Wisconsin! And this game is underway with a bang! This is where the lacrosse area gathers to talk Wisconsin sports. The Wisco Sports Show is on the air. Join in by phone or text at 796-2558. Now, here's Grant Bills. Finally, some positivity for our Milwaukee teams, the Brewers and the Bucks. Finally, finally getting a win. I was getting, I was getting worried, right? The Brewers have had, well, we've talked about it plenty. They've had a rough week, a couple of days off because of COVID, and then a couple of nights where they just couldn't score runs. Well, they stacked wins back-to-back nights against the White Sox. Hauser was amazing on Wednesday night. Josh Lindblom was good last night, but so was the offense. I want to start with the Brewers today, but we're also going to get to the Bucks. They beat the dreaded Miami Heat yesterday, 131-16. That does not even begin to tell the story of that roller coaster of a game. The Bucks came down from 23 points to win by 14. Now, the Heat got the last bucket of the game. Garbage time bucket didn't matter. If you take that out, the Bucks ended the game on a 20 to nothing run after being down 23 points in the first half. All right, awesome, yeah. Roller coaster game. We'll get into the details of that one. We'll talk Packers. We'll do it all today. This is the Wisco Sports Show. You're listening to WKTY. My name is Grant Bills. It is 4 o'clock. We're starting up at 4 o'clock. We're going to have two hours of the Wisco Sports Show every night moving forward. And although in the next week there are going to be some live sports complications, some conflicts, maybe the Brewers starting a little earlier, the Bucks going a little late, whatever, we're going to talk as much Wisconsin sports as we can between 4 and 6 o'clock. I'm glad you have tuned in. Happy Friday. Uh, if you want to join the show at, at any point, don't ask for an invitation. Don't wait for me to... To, to give you the number, 608-796-2558. That's the five-star telecom talk and text line. Jump in anytime, especially if I say something that you just hate and you need to yell at me about it. Just pick up the phone and, and absolutely call. A call or a text, that'll work, 608-796-2558. So let's start with the Brewers. I want to get to the Bucks because that went over the heat yesterday, although it wasn't a playoff game, and it probably, 99% probably didn't impact the playoff seating. The Bucs were an inch away from clinching anyways. If they wouldn't have won yesterday, I think they would have clinched in the next couple of days. But they clinched the number one seed, the best record in the East. But that game is big for a lot of reasons. Even though it's not a playoff game and it ultimately, I don't think, had a lot of impact on seating. It's big mentally and it's big for Coach Bud. It's big for Chris Middleton. So we'll get to that coming up at 4.30. I want to start with the Brewers, though. Because we've been talking so much negativity with the Brewers, they just can't score runs. Right. Well, last night they finally scored some runs. They put an eight spot up. They beat the Sox eight to three. And I feel like we kind of we kind of owe them some credit. Right. We got to give them their due. If we're going to hate on the offense when it's bad, we got to give them credit when it's good. If you just look at the final score and you didn't turn on the TV, you didn't tune into the game last night at all. And you saw eight to three. You'd think, oh, all right. Brewers offense had a good night. Eight runs. Can't argue there. Right. You would be correct. But even a bad offense can score eight runs. It happens, right? Pittsburgh Pirates walked off the Minnesota Twins yesterday. The Pirates stink, and the Twins are awesome, right? Baseball's a weird sport that way. However, if you look into the box score and you really dig into the details of last night's game, they actually showed some evidence and some tendencies of an improving offense. I'm not going to say they looked like a top-five offense or a record-setting offense that's going to score 10 runs a game, but they certainly showed a couple of tendencies of an offense that's improving. In fact, at one point last night, I was in the studio for the game last night, so I had the game on the TV, but I was listening to the radio broadcast, so Lane Grindle and Jeff Levering. And at one point, Jeff Levering said, and I quote directly because I wrote it down, I almost laughed out loud when I heard it. 
Jeff Levering says, man, the Brewers hitters are really making these pitchers work tonight. I was like, wow, that's, here we go. Right? 10 games into the year, they finally did it. They finally made it happen. Offense just isn't about scoring runs. Now, that's the end result. That's the goal. But there's a lot more that goes into offense than just the final run tally, which was eight last night. The Brewers saw a ton of pitches last night. That's part of making a pitcher work. You want to make him throw as many pitches as possible. Right? Work the count. Stress about it. Have to make high leverage pitches to avoid walks. That's what, that's what offensive players, that's what hitters want to do. And last night they did it. If, if you look at the White Sox pitchers, Gio Gonzalez got the start last night. He pitched four and a third innings. He threw 98 pitches. They had traffic on the bags in every inning. Foster, who pitched two-thirds of an inning, he pitched 10. He actually got through pretty quickly. But you look at Hamilton, one inning, 25 pitches. Fry, one inning, 22 pitches. Steve C- Steve Seashack uh, threw two-thirds of an inning and took 25 pitches. And Lale, the last pitcher to go, Pitched an inning and a third, and he threw 32 pitches. That's a lot of pitches. The Brewers saw 212 pitches last night compared to Brewers pitchers who only threw 166. Now, I'm not going to act like pitch count is the most important thing in the world. It's not, right? Corbin Burns loves to work the count. I don't like that, but he loves to, and we all consider him a good pitcher, right? You Darvish does the same thing. We all consider him to be a pretty good pitcher. But last night, given the, the, the current lack of success from the Brewers offense, it was just good to see some pitches. Just make pitchers work and get on base in any way possible. That included taking a bunch of walks. Last night, the Brewers had seven walks. One from Omar Narvaez, one from Orlando Arcia, which I don't even know if I've ever seen before. Christian Yelich had four of those walks. Four! We'll talk more about Christian Yelich in a few minutes. Brewers took their walks like last night. That was a big help in putting eight runs across the board. And they even were hit by pitches twice. Like, they were getting on, on the bases any way possible, and, and Craig Council really hammered that home in his postgame press conference. There's no switches that we're flipping here. Tonight was a night that we just, you know, we, we kept getting runners on. You know, what I'll tell you often is that we just we put pressure on in a whole bunch of innings, and it and we cashed in tonight. Um, so we, we had first and second a whole bunch of times, and, and, and two of those innings we cashed in in a big way. So... If you continue to put pressure, um, you feel like you're going to get some good results, and, and tonight we did. Pressure's a good word, right? Not just getting hits, but taking walks, if, getting hit by a pitch, if that's what it means, right? Seeing as many pitches as possible. And last night, the Brewers had 13 hits, right? Everybody in the Brewers lineup last night had a hit, except for Ben Gamble, which is hilarious because he's been their hottest hitter, and Justin Smoke. I get the feeling that the patience of Brewers fans is running very, very thin with Justin Smoke. It all started when he threw away that ball earlier this week into center field and let a couple of runs score when he sailed that throw to second base. And I was frustrated last night because I'm watching a game that took, what, three and a half hours, three hours and 40 minutes, two outs in the ninth, and Keston here and Justin Smoke can't connect on a routine grounder, an error that extended the game by, by what, 15 minutes? And I'm like, man, I want to go to bed. Like, I love the Brewers, but I need this game to be over. Justin Smoke, can you get it together at first base? I'd rather a a, a Ryan Braun with a finger infection play over there if this is how we're going to go. So the only Brewers last night without a hit, Ben Gamble, who's their hottest hitter, and Justin Smoke, who is kind of feeling the wrath from Brewers fans right now. They were getting hits, sent a ton of guys to the plate. As you said, like walks, hit by pitches, 13 hits will do that. They actually batted eight batters in the eighth inning. And all of this, Craig Council said pressure. We're putting pressure on. I, I also like to call it activity, right? That was my number one goal for Lorenzo Cain this year is to just be active. 
get hits, yeah, and, and hopefully drive in some runs, but also take walks, right? See a lot of pitches. Don't strike out. Put the ball in play. Reach on infield singles, right? Be active. Put pressure on pitchers. And they did that last night, and it was most evident in Christian Yelich's final line. Now, he had one hit, which was an inside-the-park home run, which was one of the weirder plays we've seen, and we'll talk more about that play as the show goes on. But other than that one hit, he also took four walks, and he scored three runs. So Christian Yelich is in the worst slump of his career, surrounded by a Brewers offense that's not all that good, playing in a season that is weird as weird gets and as inconsistent and stop and start as you get. And Christian Yelich said, okay, all of that aside, I'm just going to get on base anyway. I know how. Four walks, and I'm going to score three runs. And a big reason why they ended up winning last night's game. Yelich last night certainly helped the Brewers' offense by being on base and scoring those runs, but I'm going to argue that the Brewers' offense helped Christian Yelich last night too because the more pitches that are seen by Brewers' hitters and the more hits and the more walks, that means more at-bats for everybody. They batted eight guys in the eighth inning, right? Christian Yelich had, how many bats did he have last night? Christian Yelich, well, only two that scored. Ben Gamble had six, Keston Hira had six. So off the top of my head, Christian Yelich had two at-bats, One must have been an out, and one was a hit, and then four walks. So yeah, that's six. Six at-bats for Christian Yelich last night instead of three or four, right? That happens when pitchers are getting on base, and they're extending innings and forcing pitchers to throw more pitches. So Christian Yelich helped the Brewers' offense last night, but the other eight hitters helped Yelich, gave him a chance to see as many pitches as possible. Yelich said that was nice, just a chance to see some pitches, get something that was positive and something to smile about because the slump has been nasty for him. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's probably the luckiest home run in baseball history. I was definitely, definitely top three. So, uh, yeah, I needed that one. It's been an absolute zoo. Um, been awful all year. So, um, you know, to have some positivity and be able to, to smile about something was uh, was nice and much needed. We've talked about the offense, Christian Yelich. Right, Ben Gamble getting hits, getting on base, all that stuff. Craig Council. You know, who we haven't mentioned is the winning pitcher, Josh Lindblom. He was really, really good last night. He started the game. I, I thought we, I was settling in, maybe thinking we were going to be on no hitter watch because that's how dominant he looked. He struck out the first five batters that he faced. He went five innings, two earned runs, both came on one swing of the bat, a home run. Struck out seven, seven guys in five innings, and and one walk. That was his line, and pretty cool for. Josh Lindblom, because that's his first Major League Baseball win since 2013. By Major League Baseball, I mean here in this country because he's been great in Korea, but his first win in MLB since 2013 and his first ever as a starter. Cool. Good for Josh Lindblom. And we're going to talk more about starting pitching uh, coming up after 5 o'clock because Brewers fans, look around at the starting pitching right now. They're actually, actually pretty damn good. It's been a good week for Brewers starting pitching between Woodruff and the gem that Hauser tossed on Wednesday. So I want to return to the the starting rotation discussion coming up later in the show. Uh, We have plenty of time before 6 o'clock. First, though, I I want to talk about really the one thing that we haven't mentioned from last night's game, and that's the bullpen. Brewers used a lot fewer hitters and pitchers and threw a lot fewer pitches than the White Sox did. The White Sox used six pitchers last night. The Brewers only used three in part to Josh Lindblom's great start, but also Freddie Peralta working out of the pen. So I don't want to say I told you so, but I'm going to take a victory lap because I've been wanting Freddie Peralta in the pen for weeks now. Let's talk about that coming up next, the Wisco Sports Show. Right, it's everything's everything feels like it's going to be a strain. So it's sometimes that's how it works, and that's why it's a 
crazy game that we'll never figure out. Um, but you, you take it, and you know, as much as anything, you just saw a ton of pitches tonight, obviously. So um, that that can only help, you know. I mean, I, I think he's, you know, he, knowing him, he's grinding on his last at bat. But it, you know, it, seeing that many pitches is is going to help him and, and help him make adjustments. Craig Council talking about Christian Yelich and the Brewers' offense as a whole, which scored eight runs last night, but. Showed some promising signs, working the count, taking some walks, right? Putting base runners on in back-to-back innings, right? Even if they're not scoring, they have activity. They're putting pressure on the White Sox pitchers. 212 pitches last night thrown by the Sox. That's a lot of pitches. A lot of pitchers. They used six of them. The Brewers only used three. Mostly due to the fact that Josh Lindblom was really, really good and ate up the first five innings, only allowing two runs on one home run. But... Also due to the fact that Freddie Peralta threw three innings. Let's let's talk about Freddie Peralta a little bit. So after opening weekend, we saw Brandon Woodruff, Corbin Burns, and Freddie Peralta. And we like we kind of know the story with these three, right? It's almost like if you're a, if you're a Harry Potter fan, every storyline and every bit of drama in all those movies always comes down to those three main characters. And all the professors in the movies are always like, okay, you three again, like great. Like every other every other story that happens in those movies revolves around those three, Harry, Ron, and Hermione, right? You know this if you've seen the movies. It's kind of the same with the Brewers starting pitching. Like, whatever's going on, it always seems to go back to Brandon Woodruff, Corbin Burns, and Freddie Peralta. Woody has been a true ace. Talked about that earlier this week, and I will continue to pound that take the rest of the season, even if the Brewers aren't winning. Corbin Burns has both been great and terrible, often at the same time, which makes him very frustrating. I think he should speed up his delivery. I think it would help him greatly. Something to follow as the season goes on. We know Woody, we know Corbin Burns. What a, what about Freddie? What's the sitch with Freddie Peralta? After opening weekend and after one start, I saw one Freddie Peralta start. And I said, quite obnoxiously, if I remember correctly, put him in the bullpen. Literally, put Freddie Peralta in the bullpen now. Don't, don't waste your time throwing him back out on the mound to start again. Don't, don't try to move him back and forth. Don't, don't start him for three innings and giving, you know, bringing another pitcher to help him. No, 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 no. Just put him in the pen. Clear, cut, dry, done with. Move him there, make it official, make it done. That doesn't mean he's a bad pitcher. That doesn't mean he's not good enough to be a starter. Freddie Peralta is good enough to be a starter. Right now, he might not throw seven shutout innings every time he goes out there, but he's good enough to be a starter, right? There's a lot worse arms in Major League Baseball that are getting starts. That doesn't mean he's bad. It just means that he's better suited to perform well in the pen. Think think of it this way. Craig Council refers to his pitchers as outgetters right? They're, they're all the same. They're all designed to get outs. Well, if they're all outgetters, wouldn't you want to put those outgetters in the position where they can best get outs, right? Doesn't that make sense? If it's all about getting outs and we're taking labels out of it and we're taking positions out of it, we're not doing starters, closers, openers, middle relief, setup guys. If it's just all outgetters, then shouldn't we be flexible and allow those outgetters to pitch where they can get the most outs? Because last night, Freddie Peralta looked Hella good. He pitched three innings, only gave up one hit, struck out six. He was he was dealing, commanding multiple pitches, getting strikeouts. He looked really, 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 really good. To me, it looks as though the bullpen is the best possible place for Freddie Peralta to get as many outs as possible. And isn't that really what this is about? That's Craig Council's whole thing, outgetters. Freddie Peralta was so good at getting outs last night, three innings, one hit, six strikeouts, that at one point, Jeff Levering goes, you know, Lane, this is what's nice about Freddie Peralta is once you put him in there, you can let him go for a while. 
and I'm listening alone in the studio and I hear that and I go, thank you. Exactly. That's what I've been saying. You can put him in there and let him go for three innings. Just go like this. Wipe your hands. Go get a stick of gum. Go grab a bag of sunflower seeds or, you know, pack a dip in the dugout. Whatever. Just let Freddie go. That's what's so brilliant about Freddie Peralta in the bullpen. Is if you put a starter out there and he only goes three innings, well, that creates a mess. Because now you got to cover six innings through the bullpen. If you use Freddie Peralta in the bullpen and he goes three innings, well, man, what a tremendous outing. See, see how this works? You can take the same pitcher, same skills, same stat line even. But if you put that pitcher in a role that fits them better and allows them to succeed, player all of a sudden gets a lot better. Freddie Peralta looked pretty damn good last night, right? Now, if he has that exact outing, but as a starter, it's not good enough. It's only the first step. Once again, it's not that Freddie Peralta doesn't have the stuff to be a starter. But do I want to waste this entire season trying to groom him to be a starter when he can be a huge contributor and get a lot of outs while throwing out of the bullpen? I don't, I don't want to waste 60 games. Why waste the time? I'm looking into the future. I see the signs. I see the Brewers bullpen with a need for an arm like Freddie Peralta. And I see Freddie Peralta not perfectly fitting in as a starting pitcher. It is obvious to me. The math is obvious to me. I said it last weekend. And I'm going to continue to say it because I, and, and it's not, I'm not upset about this. This doesn't make me mad. It's not that I don't like Freddie Peralta or Craig Council. It's because I think it makes this team a lot better. And I cheer for the Brewers. The Brewers are my team. I want to see them win. And I think Freddie Peralta in the bullpen is a way to win more games than if Freddie Peralta was a starter. Hell, I think they should announce the move today. If you look forward to this weekend and the probable matchups that the Brewers and the Reds are going to have, Brewers are going to see some good pitchers this week. They're going to see Trevor Bauer, Anthony DiSclefani, Sonny Gray, who's pitching like a Cy Young candidate right now. He's 3-0 with an ERA under one. <clears throat> Sonny Gray is pitching great. Here's who the Brewers probably are sending to the mound this weekend. Eric Lauer uh, tonight. Tomorrow would be Brett Anderson. And then... Sunday would be Brandon Woodruff. That's going to be an awesome matchup. Brandon Woodruff versus Sonny Gray. And then we'll see next week. Then you get back to, you know, Corbin Burns once again, and then Jeff Lindblom. When I, when I look at the upcoming slate of games and the pitchers that the Brewers are probably, and I say probably because that's, you know, they're, they're the probables. We don't know, but probably they're going to use Lauer, Anderson, and Woodruff this weekend. I don't look at this slate of games and think, hmm, you know what's missing? Freddie Peralta. Freddie Peralta should be in there. I, I don't I don't I, I don't think there is a hole in the starting rotation that needs to be filled by Freddie Peralta. I don't look at any of these upcoming matchups and go, there. Freddie Peralta needs to pitch on that day. He needs to start that game. Freddie Peralta doesn't greatly improve the starting rotation, but he really, really improves the bullpen. Once again, I like to look at 2018 as a model. I like to use that for a point of reference. Because I think the Brewers' best chance at getting back to competing for a World Series is by building up a dominant bullpen, especially as Craig Council manages the team. Because I, I think Craig Council's skill set really fits well with an elite bullpen. More flexibility, be a little bit more creative, a little bit non-traditional. And that's Craig Council to a T. So looking at 2018 as the model, they had four or three arms, right, that were elite. Four that I can think of. And the Brewers should try to, to recreate these four roles in their bullpen moving forward. You got your closer. In 2018, that was Jeremy Jeffress. Now, right now, that's Josh Hader. I don't know if that's the long-term plan, but this year, Josh Hader's the closer. So check. 
Then they had their slasher, which in 2018 was Josh Hader. I, I came up with that name. Slasher is just another elite pitcher. You can you can kind of move around, use through the, the seventh to the ninth, go multiple innings, very versatile. That was the Josh Hader role. Now, if Josh Hader's closing games now, they're going to have to find somebody else to, to fill that role. They had a floater. That was Corey Knable, right? He was a closer caliber pitcher that they could bring in in the fifth inning if they wanted. Just because, because they had that luxury, right? That's a luxury the Brewers had. Bring in Corey Knable, their, quote, floater, another name I made up, in the fifth or the sixth inning, if they want. There's some traffic on the bags and Yolisha Scenes pitched himself into a jam. All right, bring in Corey Knable. And then we'll still have Jefferson Hader, you know, waiting in the wings. That's the floater role. I don't know who that is right now. And then middle relief was Corbin Burns. So those are the four roles that I think a championship bullpen needs to have. Closer, slasher, floater, and middle relief. I think 2020 Freddie Peralta can be 2018 Corbin Burns. If that makes sense. Are you following my line of logic here? Corbin Burns was the middle relief guy who could eat up innings in the middle of a game against really good teams. He was that role in 2018. Now Corbin Burns is a starter, but I think Freddie Peralta could slide in and play the role that Burns played two years ago. Now the Brewers will probably never recreate that bullpen perfectly, and I'm going to live in denial about that. I'm going to be chasing that feeling, chasing that bullpen the rest of my life. But I think they could get close. And I think the the first step is having Freddie Peralta be their premier middle reliever. And in this season where Eric Lauer and Brett Anderson are making starts and Craig Council's probably only locked to using those guys for three or four innings tops, a middle reliever becomes even more important in a short season like this, especially the way Craig Council wants to manage. So I think it's, it's, it's obvious. Freddie Peralta for the bullpen. Freddie to the pen, 2020. Put it on a bumper sticker, put it on a campaign sign. I'm going to bang that drum the rest of the season. Okay, when we come back, the Brewers had a great day yesterday and the day before. The Bucs finally got a win yesterday, and I know it probably meant nothing for the seeding. The Bucs were probably going to get the number one seed anyways, even if they didn't win yesterday. And it wasn't a playoff game, and the Heat didn't even have a couple of their best players, but yesterday's win for the Bucs was very, very important. It had nothing to do with the standings or statistics. It's It's mental. I'll explain that. We'll dig into Bucks Heat, one of the wildest NBA games I've ever watched for a million different reasons. We'll talk about that coming up next here on the Wisco Sports Show. Some very important breaking news. Uh, it looks like the Brewers are going to wear the pinstripe jerseys tonight. Adam McAlvey reporting that in the pregame Zoom session, Brett Anderson, tonight's starting pitcher, uh, is wearing the pinstripe Jays. So this is the first look we have at their new pinstripe jerseys. I The white and blue pinstripes, those were always my favorite Brewer jerseys. And I've seen a couple different versions now in my life, but those just never, ever go out of style. So we'll get a look at those tonight if the reports are true and Brett Anderson isn't messing with us. This is the Wisco Sports Show. My name is Grant Bills. We're going four to six now, baby. Four to six every night, two hours of Wisconsin sports talk. Now, next week, there might be a couple of conflicts. Maybe the Brewers starting early. Maybe the Bucks interfering. But you know what? I'm I'm not even mad about that because we finally got sports back. I'm not going not gonna to complain. We waited months for this, right? So make sure you're tuning in every night. We'll talk as much Wisconsin sports as possible, as much as the Brewers and the Bucks allow us. Full schedule at WK2iSports.com. Yesterday's Bucks heat game was one of the wilder games I've ever watched. One of the... Crazier games that I've ever watched. They won 113 to 116. They were down at one point by 23. They ended up winning by 14. And although it didn't directly impact the seeding, the Bucs were probably going to get the one seed anyways. And the Heat aren't contending for, you know, 
a, a, a higher seed than what they have now, right? Most of these teams are fairly well cemented where they are. Yesterday's game was a big deal for the Bucks. They had lost six out of their previous eight games going back to March when the season was shut down. And yesterday was looking like not only were they going to lose their seventh in nine, they lose their seventh game in nine tries, but they were also going to look really, really bad against the Heat, who are a very probable second-round matchup for the Bucks, and have given them issues in the past. That's that's not not exactly what we're looking for, right? That's not how you want to go into the postseason with that feeling in your stomach. I think this gave the Bucks a little bit of a mental edge, saying, "Look, Miami has given us issues, and we haven't looked perfect at times, but we're playing in a pandemic for God's sake. We'll be fine." That's what this game proved yesterday. I think. Because other than the Raptors, I think the Heat scare Bucks fans more than any other team in the East. The Sixers, the Celtics, the Patriots, or at least they should. If you're scared of the Celtics, man, I I don't want to break it to you, but you're wasting your time, right? If you want to worry about the Heat and the Raptors, all right, I get that. Don't don't worry about the Celtics. Just just don't waste your time. The Heat scare people, and I think yesterday mentally was good for Bucks and Bucks fans, although I know Giannis and Middleton and company don't care as much about that. I think yesterday's game served as a reminder. Even down 23 points, this Bucks team is really, really good, and they can turn it on uh, in the snap of a finger, or at least they chose to turn it on in the snap of a finger yesterday. My question is, why why do you fall down by 23 points in the first half? This is the first time the Bucks have had their starting rotation back together. They have lost to the Rockets and to the Nets. Shouldn't they want to come out and make a statement, right? Why do you fall down by 23 Well, keep in mind as we talk about this, it's really not the most important thing in the world, right? We're not to the playoffs yet, but I I like to have the deepest understanding possible of my teams. I like to know the ins and outs and the details, the way they click, the way they play, because then I feel as though I have an idea of maybe how the postseason is going to go. Why did this Bucs team that is as fundamentally sound and dedicated and disciplined as any NBA team I've watched the last couple of years, why did they fall behind by 23 points in the first half? Were Were they just not trying? Did they not care? Chris Middleton seemed to think so. I read Eric Names' report in The Athletic today. Chris Middleton talked about, yeah, I mean, we came out slow, came out sluggish, effort wasn't great. Chris Middleton seemed to think that they just didn't care in the first half. <laughs> like, that's how I read it, which is kind of absurd, right, for all the mentions or the reasons that I mentioned, right, what we know about the Heat and the games that the Bucks have lost. But when you're that good, when you're as good as the Bucks are, 55 and 14, I guess you can afford to take a half of, of basketball off. And Giannis talked about, like, look, the Heat are a really tough team to defend. They screen hard, and they cut hard, and they're always moving, and the ball is moving. If you come out and you're asleep against this team, it's going to go a lot worse than it would against some other teams. Right? For example, the Rockets. They play a lot of isolation ball. They stand around. If you fall asleep on defense against them, yeah, you'll give up some shots, but you're not going to be embarrassed. The Heat were running circles around the Bucks for the first half yesterday. I also think that... They improved in the second half due to Eric Bledsoe. The defense got better because I think Eric Bledsoe got better. We'll talk about that in a sec. It's just odd to think the Bucs would come out and mail in the first half. The evidence backs it up, though. They've given up 73 points in the first half of back-to-back games. 20-plus threes in three games in a row now. So the trend is that the Bucs are they're willing to let teams shoot over them. They're willing to give up some points in the first half. The problem is, in the second half against the Nets, Bud didn't play anybody. So, the, so that trend wasn't allowed to balance out. I think there was a lack of effort in, in the first half. I also think it's because this is the first time all of these starters have played together in a while, right? Eric Bledsoe is now back, and although he played a game ago, this was his first real stretch of minutes with Lopez and Matthews and Giannis and Middleton, and 
first time any of them had played together in the second half. It's been so start and stop, and they've been very cautious with Giannis and Middleton. The point where they're playing Frank Mason and DJ Wilson big minutes down the stretch against the Nets. First time that we've seen these guys play big minutes together, that was yesterday. And this is especially important on defense, especially with Bledsoe, because Bledsoe's role on this defense is very important. Giannis talked about coming off screens and cutting hard and, and you're chasing guys around. That's Bledsoe's bread and butter. Eric Bledsoe comes over screens because he's a little bit smaller. He's got the, ba- the body of a running back. He can get over and around a screen and, and turn quickly and trail a point guard or a, or a defender. And he's so athletic, he can even get up and block a shot from behind if he needs to. Eric Bledsoe plays a very important role on this defense, depending or defending rather the opponent's point guard. And Eric Bledsoe really hadn't played a substantial stretch of minutes with his counterparts, the starters, until the second half yesterday. I think that made a big difference. So I think they came out, they had poor effort in the first half, and then it took them until the second half for Eric Bledsoe and company to get going. I, I, I'm i also a little bit worried about the Bucks bench, and the Heat bench looked tremendous in the first half. If you look at statistics and plus minuses, the Heat starters are all in the negative greatly. Kelly Olenek, minus 23. Bam Adebayo is negative 21. Jay Crowder was negative 28. You go to the bench, they're even, or they're pretty positive. Andre Iguodala played 28 minutes. He was plus 18. Right, Tyler Harrow was plus 9. Derek Jones Jr., plus 4. The Heat bench thoroughly worked the Bucks bench. There is not a player in the positive, other than other than George Hill, I guess, who played you know a lot of minutes alongside the starters. There wasn't a member of that Bucks bench that was in the positive. It's the one of the bigger concerns I have seen since the bubble has started and these games have started. The Bucks bench does not look the same to me, and it doesn't seem to stack up against the bench of Miami. Yesterday, that was obvious. Or Toronto. They seem a little old. They seem a little slow. And I'm feeling very grateful that the Bucs went out and got Marvin Williams. Because without Marvin Williams, the Bucs would then be relying on George Hill, who, we got to talk about George Hill. He's invisible. George Hill is invisible. What happened? He played 24 minutes. He only took three shots. And look, I'm not advocating that George Hill start taking away shots from Giannis or Middleton or Lopez or Bledsoe. Or even Marvin Williams. But George Hill was a contributor. He was a solid addition offensively early in the season. Now, Eric Bledsoe was hurt, so George Hill was expected to pick up some of that, but I'm worried about George Hill. He he looked invisible. He looked absolutely invisible, and he has for the last couple of games. He had nine points, but seven of them came on free throws. He only took three shots. George Hill's been invisible. Ursan's just been bad. Now, Pat Connaughton's been pretty good. I don't really want to have to rely on Pat Connaughton in a playoff series against the Heat or the Raptors. But I do like Pat Connaughton, and he's looked good. I just Is that our last line of defense? I mean, the Heat have... I, I, look, I've talked about how I don't think... I don't think Andre Iguodala is going to be a big factor because I don't know how much he has left, but Heat bench looked a lot better yesterday. The Raptors bench has looked a lot better than the Bucks bench. That is one concern I have. Let's talk about the Heat for a sec. How do you blow a 23-point lead when you supposedly have the Giannis stopper, Bam Adebayo, and a great coach that has two... NBA Finals championships. Eric Spolster, I would make sure I wasn't shorting him one, but 2008 was Pat Riley. Two championships. He's coached in four. Really well coached with a lead. What happened to the Heat? Because once again, this very well could be a team that the Bucks see in the postseason. I wonder if Tyler Harrow and Duncan Robinson didn't use up all their mojo in the first half. There's this narrative that teams are shooting 
way better than normally against the Milwaukee Bucks. You go on social media and everybody's saying, when did the Heat turn into the Golden State Warriors? When did the Nets turn into the Golden State? When did the Rockets turn into the Golden State Warriors? Right, all these teams are way outperforming their expected you know, shooting percentages. I, I don't know if that's necessarily the case. In fact, Jared Dubin at CBS reported that the last two games between the Heat and the Nets, these two teams have underperformed their expected field goal percentage, but they have seen a differential of about 12% between shots in the paint and shots on the three-point line. Now, a lot of that is gibberish. The big takeaway from that is teams are hot in the first half and then cooling off. So that cool off in the second half of both the Nets and the Heat was expected if you do, you know, projections and expected field goal percentage. But the big detail to know is that teams are moving about 12% of their field goal attempts from the paint, where you can't score on the Bucks, to the corners, to, to, to the three-point line. And they're hitting them. They are hitting them. And the Bucs are having issues with it. As the Bucs move closer to the playoffs, we start to talk about serious matchups, you know, with the Magic or the Nets. And then in the second round, if it's the Heat or whoever it is, that's something the Bucs are going to have to fix. Because they cannot surrender wide open short corner three after wide open short corner three. NBA players are just too good at that shot. It's, it's a layup for some guys. Like P.J. Tucker, man, that's a layup for him. That, that is a layup for P.J. Tucker. That's a, that's a free throw. That's easy. NBA players are too good. And teams have figured this out. 12%. Once again, Jared Dubin at CBS. I found this stat yesterday and I thought it was fascinating. 12% of field goal attempts last two games have been moved from where they would have been in the paint can't score on Giannis and Brooke Lopez, so teams are moving them out to the short corner, and the Bucs haven't been able to do anything about it. That concerns me a little bit. Another thing that concerns me, or made me laugh yesterday, about the Heat. What happened with Bam Adebayo as, as the Giannis stopper? Giannis went 13 for 13 on his two-point shots yesterday. Bam Adebayo is the center. So, I'm not a calculus teacher, but that doesn't add up, right? Bam Adebayo, the Giannis stopper, giving Giannis 100% from the field inside that three-point line. And I don't blame Bam for this. I, I think, as NBA fans, we overdo this a little bit. Remember when Andre Iguodala was coined the LeBron stopper? When Iggy won finals MVP in 2015, and everybody was like, Iggy's the, the, the LeBron stopper. LeBron averaged 35-13-8 and eight in that NBA finals. Like, we label these players as, as the stopper, right? Bam's the Giannis stopper. Andre is the, the LeBron stopper. Uh, I don't know if that was ever the case. Really, when you have excellent... MVP Hall of Fame type players like LeBron or to a, a lesser extent like Giannis, it becomes a, a team defensive game more so than one player. Andre Iguodala was allowed to be perceived successful against LeBron in that finals because the team defense as a whole was very good around Andre Iguodala. Right? When Bam is defending Giannis well, it's often because he's getting help from Jay Crowder or Andre Iguodala or maybe Duncan Robinson, right? There's hands everywhere. Right When Giannis drove into double teams, it wasn't Bam Adebayo stripping or blocking the ball away. It was somebody else who came in to help him. So we put Bam Adebayo in a little bit of an unfair spot when we say he's the Giannis stopper. Well, no one's the Giannis stopper. It takes more than one person, just like it took more than one person in the finals to slow LeBron down enough for the, for the Warriors to actually be able to beat him. 35-13-8. Yeah, Iggy's the LeBron stopper. Okay, yeah, sure. We got to get over that. We got to stop overreacting to, to every little sequence and every little narrative and, and every little game. Ultimately, it's about team adjustments and team defense. And let's talk about adjustments. I know the Bucks won yesterday, but Coach Bud was making me mad. Something he's got to work on. I'll explain that coming up next as the Wisco Sports Show rolls on. Wisco Sports Show rolls on here on WKTY. 
My name is Grant Bills. Glad you have tuned in. Wisco Sports are now going 4 to 6 p.m. every day. We can pack a lot of good Wisconsin sports talk in two hours, right? Talking about the Brewers, talking about the Bucks, and we're going to get back into the Brewers uh, after 5 o'clock, and we're even going to talk Packers uh, coming up at 5.30 as well. I have an interesting take. I, w- I want to get your guys' thoughts on it about the Packers' weapons. I'm not just going to ask you about the wide receivers again. How many, how many dozens of times have we done that uh, on all of our shows on the station? No, I, w- I want to take a little bit of a different approach. So I'm excited to get your thoughts on that. And as always, 608-796-2558 is the five-star telecom talk and text line. Let's let's continue our conversation about the Bucs. They beat the Heat yesterday, and although the game didn't have a huge impact on seeding, wasn't a playoff game, it was mentally a, 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 a nice win for the Bucs heading into the postseason because the Heat have had their number. The Bucs had lost six of eight games dating back to March, you know, for whatever that's worth. It was a nice win that I think gives the Bucs a little bit of a mental edge should they play the Heat in the postseason. So keep that in mind. Middleton was tremendous yesterday, and and we really didn't talk a lot about the statistics or about the details of yesterday's game other than the big picture stuff. Let's let's get a little bit more specific. Middleton was tremendous yesterday. He had 33 points, but he was efficient as you can be. Chris Middleton last night, 9 of 14, 5 of 6 from 3. He had all 10 free throws he took, 33 points on only 14 shots. That's fantastic. In fact, Giannis and Middleton, you want to talk about a good good combination? Right, Giannis and Middleton are poetry when they're both cooking like they were yesterday. They combined for 31 shots, 66 points. That, 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 that is efficiency. That's what we're looking for, ladies and gentlemen. I have no complaints about how this game ended, about how it played out, and I have no complaints about the stats of Giannis or Middleton or any other player on the team. I do, however, have a little bit of a concern, a little bit of a question, and possibly a problem if I see this again with Coach Bud. Possibly. Just throwing it out there. I think Bud's problem sometimes is he is too result-oriented. I just said a a couple seconds ago, I said, I have no complaints about how this game played out, right? It worked out in the end. I think Bud is sometimes too locked in on how things play out. For example, if the Bucs are down 20 in the first half, I think sometimes Coach Bud is in his head and he's like, well, don't worry, we'll keep doing what we do and it will play out. It will work out. And yesterday it did. I think because of the brilliance of Giannis, the brilliance of especially Chris Middleton, and the advantage that Brooke Lopez and Eric Bledsoe give them defensively, that was big. And every minute that those five play together, they're going to get better because they've taken such time off now between the actual layoff of four months and you know the staggered minutes in the bubble. I, I think Coach Bud's problem is that he sees his team struggling and he thinks, our system is good, what we do works, and I'm going to let it ride and it'll work out in the end. Most of the time in the regular season, it will work out. But what about against the Raptors last year? Did that work out? Coach Bud basically said, hey, we play our game. It works out for us. Well, yes and no, right? That's how you win 60 games and you get a one seed. But in the postseason, you need to be a little bit more adaptable than that, right? Rigid people do not typically do well in this world, especially now with all the technology we have. We're so mobile. You cannot be rigid. You need to be able to adapt. I I oh I I am concerned the coach Bud cannot adapt because yesterday let me give you a couple examples. First half yesterday the Bucks are getting gouged. They're down 20 plus. They're getting killed. Bud needs to realize something at that moment. He needs to think okay. This is not working. <laughs> what we're doing is not working. What what's working? What's going well? Well, what went well for the Bucks yesterday in the first quarter is Chris Middleton was great. He hit almost every shot he took. He went 3 for 4. 
He looked smooth. He looked confident. And for Chris Middleton, a player like Middleton, that's really important because Chris Middleton is a shooter. And when a shooter gets hot, sometimes it's better to abandon the offense and just feed that guy. That doesn't mean I want him throwing up heat checks from the logo. But when Chris Middleton's cooking, it would be wise to get him the ball, right? Chris Middleton starts in the first quarter. He goes three for his first four shots, looks smooth, confident. He looked great. I'm like, okay, so it's going to be a Chris Middleton game. At this point, at the end of the first quarter, the Bucs are getting hosed. Coach Bud needs to realize, all right, Chris Middleton is what's working. I'm going to grab my stack of Chris Middleton plays, and we're going to run every single one of them. I'm going to feed Chris Middleton until he misses or until Miami figures it out. I don't care about our big picture system and about the Bucks' way and how we've gotten to this point. As of right now, at the beginning of the second quarter against the Miami Heat, Chris Middleton is cooking, and we're going to feed him. And he didn't do that. And at the time, Giannis is just addicted to running into double teams and throwing the ball away. Bledsoe's slowly working his way back in. Wesley Matthews is supposed to be 3 and D, but recently he's been all D, no 3. I don't know where offensively Wesley Matthews has been. That leaves Chris Middleton. Bud needs to learn to ride a player when that player is hot. And I don't mean that sexually. Quit laughing at that. It's not funny. I'm talking about D with Wesley Matthews and riding players. Hey, cool it. Coach Bud needs to learn how to ride the hot hand. And yesterday in the first quarter, the Bucs are getting killed. Nothing's going right except for Chris Middleton, who's shooting the lights out. At that point, Coach Bud needs to go to his clipboard or go to Coach Darvinham or somebody and say, hey, get me every Chris Middleton set that we have. Get me every play that we can run for Chris Middleton. I want him shooting from this spot, this spot, this spot. We've prepared for this. We're ready for this. Chris is hot. Let's go. He should be excited. He should be excited that he gets to adjust the game plan. He should be excited that he has a shooting guard like Chris Middleton that allows him to run certain sets and run certain plays to give his team an advantage. And I don't see that. I saw Coach Bud just continue yesterday and say, hey, keep at it, it'll work out. Keep at it, it'll work out. Keep at it, it'll work out. And eventually it did in a great way in the fourth quarter. The Bucs came back and won by 14. It worked out. But it doesn't always work out the way that it should. You know this, right? Just because something's supposed to happen doesn't mean it will. Life's not fair. Just because you deserve to win doesn't mean you're going to win. What happened against the Raptors last year? Coach Bud is still waiting for that that series to even out. And it hasn't. Because they lost. They won the first two games, and then they're like, hey, we got this. Didn't change anything, and they ended up getting swept out of the postseason after that point. You can't always wait for things to play out. Sometimes you have to force the opponent's hand. You need to force the issue. And Bud doesn't do that. It was the same with Brooke Lopez against Houston. If it's working, hammer it. Hammer it until it doesn't work anymore. And when was that game? On Sunday? Can't remember now when they played the when they played the Rockets. Sunday or Monday when they played the Rockets. If Brooke Lopez is creating good things offensively, then keep giving the ball. Don't worry about your MVP. Don't worry about your shooting guard. Start with Brooke Lopez and everything will fall into place from there. Easy as that. Middleton could have 45 last night. He started in the first quarter hot as you can be, looking smooth, looking great. And then in the second quarter, you know what they do? They come out and they let Kyle Korver rip five threes in a row. Go 0 for 5. Why are those shots not going to Middleton? Once again, it worked out, but it's not always going to work out. All right, hour number two of the Wisco Sports Show, coming up next. 